out there in Star Wars, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in on all the details of that galaxy far, far away. I'm joined by no one at this exact moment, but I'll be joined later by my fellow librarian, Ross. Um, we um, are in a bit of a quarantine situation. I got very, very ill over the past uh, weekend or so, and so I have to be quarantined. Um, and I've been honestly sick as a dog up until very recently. Um, I, I have just enough voice uh, to talk to you today. I, I hope I'm coming through. I'm sure I'm a little bit nasally, a little bit. I apologize if I cough. I'll try to edit most of that stuff out, but hopefully you'll enjoy this. Um, but to make sure that we don't miss another episode of Star Wars All In, what we did is we recorded our own little segments. We're going to stitch them sort of together, um, and I, I hope you really enjoy it. Uh, I'm going to have Ross come and join us first. He's going to be talking a little bit about one of his favorite subjects in Star Wars, which is the books. He's going to give you a little bit of a primer on, let's say that you've decided it is time to get into Star Wars reading. Well, where do I begin? He's going to give you some pathways, some ideas of what the best way to sort of dig in into the publishing side of Star Wars is, and here on the dawn of the New High Republic series, it makes sense that you might be interested in what's going on over here. Then we're going to have a segment with me where I'm going to talk about some of my memories and a little bit of background information on the 1993 video game release TIE Fighter and sort of what it meant to me as well as kind of what it's all about because it's a fairly seminal, fairly well-loved and well-remembered um, part of the storied Star Wars video game story. And uh, then we're going to come back and wrap it up and we hope you enjoy it. Now we're going to get started with all of this right after this. everyone and thank you for being here with me today as you heard up top a little illness got in the way of recording this week so mac and i are preparing a special topic instead of our planned show for the week this week i'd like to take some time and talk to you about something that is near and dear to my fandom and that is star wars novels today we will discuss a brief history of star wars novels what's available today and how you should go about picking a star wars story to read for yourself the first star wars novel an adaptation of the first film, was published November 12, 1976 by Ballantine Books in the U.S. Ghostwritten by Alan Dean Foster, the book would sell out its first printing of 125,000 copies by February of 77 and over 3.5 million copies total before the release of the film. Later editions of the novel changed the cover, added introductions, and even added color photos from the movie. Like most Star Wars film novelizations, there were some significant differences between the book and the finished film, since Foster's book was based on an earlier draft of George Lucas' script. Some noticeable differences include information about Palpatine's rise to power and references to Vader being a Sith Lord, both details not found in the final film. 
Foster's contract also included a second novel, so Lucas tasked him with writing a sequel that could be shot inexpensively if Star Wars flopped. When the film released and success was clear, Foster's second novel became the first unique story published in the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Released in March of 1978 and titled Splinter of the Mind's Eye, this story tells a sequel to Star Wars that has Luke and Leia traveling to recruit for the Rebel Alliance, but instead crash land on a swampy planet that would become to be known as Mimban. The next original Star Wars story would be published in Del Rey in 79, titled Han Solo at Star's End. The first in a trilogy and set ten years before the original film, these novel told stories of smuggling days of Han and Chewie, well before that fateful day on Tatooine when they met Luke and Old Ben for the first time. Han Solo's Revenge and Han Solo and the Locks Lost Legacy followed to complete the original trilogy in August of 1980. These would be the last Star Wars novels to be published until October of 83, when the first in a trilogy of Lando novels was published, titled Lando Calrissian and the Mineharp of Sheru. Much like the solo novels before, this trilogy of books tells the story of Lando before the days of the Rebellion. With the sequels to the Lando trilogy concluding by the end of 83, Star Wars novels were no longer being released. The films were done, and the franchise was wrapping down for Lucasfilm to focus on other projects. Between the mid-80s and 91, you often hear fans describe this period as the dark times, stealing a line from Obi-Wan, since there was very little Star Wars to keep fans occupied. Single seasons of Star Wars cartoons and a few video games and action figures weren't enough to keep the focus on Star Wars in the general public's mind. But thanks to another type of Star Wars book published in 1987, there was one bright spot in the Star Wars publishing universe. West End Games produced the very first Star Wars role-playing game, followed by other material that would become very important to Star Wars storytelling over the next 20 years. These source books, which added minute details to characters, ships, and planets, would be the first publication to create extensive details about the universe. These details are very much what made podcasts like this one possible. In 1991, the Star Wars Expanded Universe got arguably its biggest boost ever with the release of Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire. The first in a trilogy, the story of Grand Admiral Thawne, who, five years after the death of the Emperor, has rallied the Imperial Remnant to attack the New Republic. The book reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and the trilogy sold over 15 million combined copies, becoming the unofficial official sequel to Return of the Jedi. From here, the expanded universe, well, expanded. After Thrawn's story was told, over 140 more adult Star Wars novels were published between 1991 and April 2014. These stories spanned from thousands of years before Luke Skywalker to dozens of years after the end of the original trilogy. During this time, there were also many stories called in comics and younger reader books, some of which still have droves of fans. The universe looked very different from the current Star Wars sequel trilogy that many newer and casual fans have experienced. For example, Palpatine did stay mostly dead, but he did have a young clone of himself running around at one point. Leia and Han had three children instead of one, including their own set of twins. Luke was married and had a Ben of his own. Fans grew to love these adaptations of their classic characters, as well as new characters, places, and stories that this media told. For years, these stories carried Star Wars and ushered in a new generation of fans. In 2012, 
Disney announced that it had purchased Lucasfilm and that development would start on a new trilogy of films. As we got closer to the release of The Force Awakens, fans of the expanded universe wondered how they would work around all the stories we already knew about Luke, Leia, and Han that would be set around the same time period as the new trilogy. Well, those fans were answered in April of 2014, when Disney announced that everything published before now would be considered legends, or unofficial stories that probably didn't happen. This meant that they would be free to tell any story they wanted with the sequel trilogy, without having to adhere to pre-established lore. A lot of fans of the expanded universe, once again now called Legends, took this as an affront by Disney. They didn't want to lose stories they were attached to and loved. Disney did, however, promise to continue to publish these stories with a new Gold Legends banner across their top. This decision was, and is, still seen as controversial but it really was the only way forward. Filmmakers are not going to be able to tell compelling stories when they have hundreds of books they have to stay in the boundaries of, and the average Star Wars fan wouldn't have any idea what was going on if they were dropped right into this universe that had been going on and growing and changing with them since they last saw a Star Wars film in 2005. While some fans were hurt by this decision, Disney also announced that there would be a focus on creating a new expanded universe, and that everything from that point forward would be part of the official story. This compromise allowed for new Star Wars novels to continue to be released, and gave new readers a jumping on point without having to know years of history. Since 2014, over 50 new novels have been published into the new expanded universe, and that's really what we're here to talk about today. So now that we're all on the same page with the history of Star Wars publishing, let's discuss what types of Star Wars books are out there, how you can pick a book for yourself or a loved one, and how to keep track of all this madness. So there are four primary types of books we'll be discussing. Adult novels, young reader novels, graphic stories, and reference books. Adult and young reader novels are similar in many ways when it comes to Star Wars. These stories typically tell a complete or complete section of a story, so if you want a beginning, middle, and end, these are probably the types of books you're looking for. The young adult books sometimes are shorter, in bigger font, and have smaller pages, but in general, the stories are just as interesting, sometimes even better. So I absolutely recommend both, and believe both can provide great experiences. There are also graphic-based stories. This can be comic books, collections of individual comics, or relatively new to uh, modern Star Wars, manga adaptations of other stories. Now, these comic-based stories are another avenue you could pursue. If you prefer a graphic-based narrative, this might be for you. Each month, new Star Wars stories are released as individual comic books, and every four to six months, these comics are collected into a single trade and sold as a complete story. Some comics will even get a year's worth of issues published together, normally called a volume. Sometimes you'll even see, uh, like we have coming up for Dr. Aphra, an omnibus, which is a complete run of comics, typically over the course of many years. So there are lots of ways to buy these graphic stories. You can, of course, get all of these digitally as well. A few years ago, we began getting a manga adaptation of Claudia Gray's novel, Lost Stars. Since then, we have also gotten manga adaptations of Leia, Princess of Alderaan, as well as The Legends of Luke Skywalker, and we have a few more graphic novels coming 
in Star Wars The High Republic, which we'll talk about briefly later. So, if you need pictures with your Star Wars stories, graphic novels, manga, comic books are a great thing to explore. And there are tons and tons of them out there, just like the novels, spanning all areas of Star Wars. So I highly, highly recommend you check these out. Finally, we have reference books. Now, reference books can mean many different things. These can be art books, technical manuals, cookbooks, pop-up books, or a whole slew of other things. Reference books, while generally considered for the more hardcore fans, can be a ton of fun. For example, if you're interested in lightsabers, there are some really, really great books out there right now that just have technical information and very high-resolution pictures and details of different lightsabers from around the galaxy. So, with all of this in mind, how in the galaxy are you supposed to pick a book to start with? Let's talk about it. Now we have to decide if we want to read a Legends book or something from the new Expanded Universe. Generally, I recommend reading from the newer material for a plethora of reasons. First, it's easy to access and inexpensive. Second, the stories have a higher quality control, so you're less likely to get something you won't enjoy. Third, it is more likely characters you will meet in those stories are likely to pop up in other content, so you'll probably see them again. There are a few ways to guide yourself towards a potential pick. Is there a character you love? A time frame? A movie? Just that alone can be enough to point you in a direction. Once you've read a few, you'll start to notice there are authors you are more you like more than others and can seek out their other Star Wars stories. Here are a few recommendations for places to start in Star Wars. Master and Apprentice by Claudia Gray. This book tells the story of Obi-Wan and his master Gwygon on a mission for the Republic before the events of The Phantom Menace. You get to see them work together, bond, and learn off one another. I highly, highly recommend this story. Claudia Gray is my favorite Star Wars author, along with uh, many other people's favorites as well. And I think this book is uh, maybe her best. So I think it's a great place to start, especially if you love Jedi and the Force. Rebel Rising by Beth Revis. This is the rest of Jyn Erso's story. You may remember her from the Star Wars movie Rogue One the young rebel who helps steal the Death Star plans for the Rebel Alliance. Well, we all love that movie, but, you know, that was only about a third of her story, the last act. This book will show you the rest, how she grew up with Saw Gerrera from the time her parents were taken from her, how she learned to be a rebel, and eventually how she was left by Saw and ended up in the prison we see her in at the beginning of Rogue One. I also recommend Phasma by Delilah Dawson. This book does so well what the whole point of the expanded universe is. It takes a character that has virtually no detail in the films and gives them characterization and motivation. If you enjoy this one, I'd also recommend reading Black Spire, in a lot of ways a sequel to this book, and one I personally enjoyed even more. Finally, we are at The High Republic, The Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. Now, the Light of the Jedi is the first in a new line of stories set 200 years before The Phantom Menace. If you want something completely new and fresh, this is the place to be. The High Republic is a publishing initiative 
from many different houses that's going to be going on for years to come. And a bulk of new Star Wars printed stories are going to be told in this time frame. So now is a great time to read this book and stay caught up so you can read the other Star Wars High Republic novels that will be coming out over the coming years. So, now that we've got all this rattling around in our head, there's only one more tool you need to be armed with to really go out into the galaxy of Star Wars books and follow your destiny. That, my friends, is a way to keep track of all this. I'd like to give a special shout-out to Utini.com, an amazing resource for Star Wars books. That is Y-O-U-T-I-N-I.com. They have a digital bookshelf you can use to keep track of your collection or gather more information on Star Wars books. If you aren't familiar, there's also a mobile app called Goodreads that you can use to track your progress on books you are reading as well. Well, thank you everyone for sticking with me. I hope you now know just a little bit more about Star Wars books, and hopefully you'll read one soon. But now, it's time to strap in pilots, because we need to fly on over to Mac for our next topic. It's on the verge of success. Soon, peace and order will be restored throughout the galaxy. Even now, our capable forces, led by Darth Vader, are striking back at the rebel insurgents. Signal Vice Admiral Thrawn to launch his TIE squadrons immediately. This rebel stronghold has no hope of escape. Commence the attack. Yes, sir. Yavin, rebel terrorists aided by spies and traitors within the Empire, struck a cowardly blow against the new symbol of Imperial power, the Death Star. Darth Vader brought swift justice to the rebels by destroying their main base on Hoth. The pitiful remnants of the Alliance have now scattered to the Outer Rim. In the days ahead, the Empire will call upon the Imperial Navy to eradicate the last vestiges of the Rebellion and restore law and order to the galaxy. That is the opening crawl to 1994's TIE Fighter. Uh, TIE Fighter is uh, another uh, Star Wars video game brought to you by uh, the, at the time, LucasArts. Um, it's odd because before and now you would call them LucasFilm games. Um, but basically, the interactive entertainment uh, component of uh, George Lucas's media empire. Uh, the whole thing with TIE Fighter was... TIE Fighter is sort of a landmark game. If you were playing PC games and you liked Star Wars in the early 90s, you would have been familiar with this game because it was just incredibly potent. Um, it wasn't unprecedented, though. So uh, a year or so earlier, they had X-Wing. And the entire point of X-Wing was it allowed you to throw yourself in the seat of an X-Wing, go out there and fly sorties, uh, reminiscent of um, flight simulator games of the time. Uh, in a vein similar to the early Wing Commanders, the various um, real-world flight simulation systems 
as well as even things like um, Rescue on Fraculus, which was a 3D rendering sort of experiment done by Lucasfilm Games themselves um, some five years earlier. The whole thing that was going on with X-Wing is you are the good guys. You are fighting, you know, waves of TIE fighters, TIE bombers, um, and you have the option of flying Y-Wings, A-Wings, X-Wings, and eventually in expansions you got to the B-Wing, and you essentially were able to live out that fantasy of being a dashing um, pilot. So when they came around to the sequel of it, they decided that, well, the obvious answer is the other side of the roster of uh, famous ships from Star Wars, which is the Imperial Fleet. So your TIE fighters, TIE bombers, TIE interceptors, and new vehicles that would be introduced in this game, such as um, the TIE Defender, um, which is sort of like the TIE Advances like um, mass production model. Um, I think you even get a chance to fly a TIE Advance. Uh, and then the other thing that you also get is um, some of the other uh, ships that are in there, like the assault gunboats and a few other things like that. But what really made TIE Fighter kind of special was it was the first time they had dabbled with letting you be the bad guy. Uh, and they did it in a really profound way. So obviously you're fighting for the Imperial Navy. So even as the opening crawl I just gave uh, discussed, you're 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 for law and order. You're here to bring you know justice and and order to the galaxy from these rabble of freedom fighters and anarchists who are trying to shred the re you know the re, the republic's domain that became the empires. This shining you know civilization all centralized under one common goal, one common theme: the the will of the emperor and his need to bring. Um, equality and everything to everyone. Uh, uh, Prosperity to everyone is probably a better name. There's very little equality under uh, the imperial rule. Um, But it really embraces that. Now, in the way that the game is played, you essentially start out by entering the game to a roster screen, and you are on a flight roster. In X-Wing, you were uh, called Ace, that was sort of your name, also a nickname of Lucky, and there was actually a booklet that came with that that sort of filled in some details about who your your imaginary pilot was. It wasn't really trying to be, you know, too heavy on story. It was mostly the story was told through the missions and sort of the campaign you were on. In TIE Fighter, you do the same thing. You register whatever your your call sign is. So um, there's a tendency to use Greek letters to describe flight wings, so I usually flew under the banner of Omicron. Uh, and whatever name you pick is just, it's your save file, essentially. Once you do that, then you enter the idea that you are on a, um, Imperial Star Destroyer, and there are various rooms on the Star Destroyer you get. This is, this is a classic LucasArts thing, is when they went to make Star Wars games, because they were sort of forbade from doing it for a while, when they sort of started diving into it in the 90s, their general idea was, okay, well, let's find a game that's really great, Let's homage it. You might call it a ripoff, but they're so well done in most cases that I think ripoff is a little mean. It's literally just them saying, hey, we love that game. Let's make a Star Wars version of that. And this is very much what Wing Commander did, where you were on a ship and you got to go to, let's say you need to practice. So you go to the simulator and the simulator gives you just um, artificial missions you can run to learn the basics or... um, 
just the general concepts of the game, or you can try a mission that you've already completed just to see how it would go differently if you wanted to. Then you have places like um, the uh, campaign, and the campaign is like a briefing room where they discuss what mission is in front of you, they highlight the targets, they highlight what the objections are, they're showing you uh, what the kind of mission staff's belief is the critical path to success, and once you do that, then you can decide that, okay, yeah, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fly that mission. And then you get these little cutscenes of you, you disembarking or embarking. Uh, so sometimes you're like hopping on a shuttle and being shipped over to another ship that is the ship that's actually going to launch this campaign. Or you might actually get a cutscene relative of story because the thing that was great about TIE Fighter was TIE Fighter had a little more in-your-face story. It starts out with sort of like a rogue um, moth who is sort of, the uh, best way to put it is rogue. He's kind of supporting the, the Alliance indirectly. He's basically trying to make his own bid for power in his own sector. And by doing so, he's sort of allowing the rebellion to fester and it kind of causes some infighting and it gives you an excuse to fight Imperial craft while you're an Imperial. Um, but the game goes places. This is the first time I ever experienced um, Grand Admiral Thrawn. Uh, I had not yet read, if I'm being honest with myself, I didn't read Heir to the Empire until about six or seven years ago. Uh, I just, it just completely slid right past me. Uh, one time I tried to pick it up in like, um, like the early 2000s. I just didn't like it. it. It has some rickety parts that just feel very like, oh yes, this was written like when there wasn't any other Star Wars. But now that we spun up this entire legends and EU around it, it, it feels kind of quirky. You know, it has ideas of what the Clone Wars were about that turn out to be not what the Clone Wars are about and stuff like that. So I think it's a fun book. I think it's an important book, but the character of Thrawn is obviously super important. There's a reason he's been brought back in, back in a very prominent way to canon is because people loved his character that much. And this was the game that I got introduced to him. You know, in that that blue skin, that red eyes, the crisp white um, clothing, his flagship, the Chimera, running around, his obsession with art, his uh, insane stratagems that are are all about just really, you know, psychologically deconstructing your enemy. Um, and he was sort of like the last part of the game, sort of. Uh, I guess the person you're serving under, you eventually kind of serve under him. But what's really neat about um, the game, like I was trying to say, is the uh, there is a character, um, Mark Steele. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He's got a double A in there for really no good reason. So, so maybe it's Marek, Marek, Marek Steele. Let's go with that. Let's go with Marek Steele. Marek Steele, whose uh, backstory is kind of told in the. Um, there's a booklet that came with the game because back in those days, you would get a box copy of a game and it would come in a number of diskettes or CDs and uh, you would load those into your computer and it would come with what are called the feelies and feelies are little extras um, that would be either um, just help enrich the game. Like it was very famous for like, oh, well, there's a cloth map of, um, you know, your fantasy world in this RPG you just opened up. Or, um, hey, here is a um, secret decoder system for uh, unlocking the piracy tools, like the dial-up pirate from Monkey Island is an example of that. Um, but the in this, it was this booklet 
because um, I got it on CD-ROM, and at that point, CD-ROM was sort of its own copy protection. There wasn't as much of the, um, you know, put in this code or answer these questions or tell me what words on page 15, paragraph X. Uh, you didn't have any of that because the CD-ROM just, you needed the disc to run the game. You couldn't run it without the disc, and that sort of helped uh, make PC gaming pretty safe until the late 90s, early 2000s, when CD burners became pretty ineffective, you know, pretty cheap to buy. So you'd plug this in, and you know, while you're waiting for your game to install, because they had to install, you would read this book, and this book was about Merrick Steele, who was kind of a really rough-and-tumble uh, kid, had a really kind of um, strange, to say the least, uh, upbringing that eventually got him into swoop bike racing. He has, like, nerves of steel. He just has zero, um, like, fear. And it gets in the attention of Imperials who draft him into the Imperial Navy, and that's where you start the game as you are this character, Merrick, who has just joined the Imperial Navy and is finally going out on his first sorties. And one thing that was hugely different gameplay-wise from X-Wing is you're in a TIE Fighter. TIE Fighters are blazingly fast. TIE Fighters um, have fairly strong cannons, but they have no missiles. They have no, like, long, you know, long-range tracing weapons. They have no shields. Um, and, you know, in the story of the universe, they also don't have any you know, life support systems. You bring those on with you with your flight suit. Um, so... You're so much more fragile in TIE Fighter for the longest time, because I think out of all the core fighters, there's only, like, two that have shielding. Um, so you're spending the majority of your time um, just learning to outmaneuver your opponents, outflank them, and um, and essentially just use your speed to your advantage to get around what are often uh, stuff that is shielded, like X-Wings and Y-Wings. So... Um, you basically start off building yourself up from fairly humble beginnings because, again, you're sort of a um, a lowly pilot, and in as uh, as is traditional lore in Star Wars, Tie Fighters pilots are very cut from that Top Gun. They're very you know macho, very bravado because they have to be because most of them die. Uh, there's a great tale that reminded me and kind of maybe spurned this topic, which is the. Um, the guide to uh, being a TIE fighter pilot, which is one of the stories from certain point of view, Empire Strikes Back, uh, that kind of talks about the phenomenon of like, these things aren't shielded. You have to be that much more careful. You have to be that much more smart. Um, but, you know, it talks about the fact of like, but if you can keep all that in mind, you get to deal with the fastest hunk of junk that you will ever fly. They are cheaply made, mass produced, but what they mass produced just sings and soars through space. Uh, and that's what I think the fantasy you kind of get in TIE Fighter is being an ace pilot in these ridiculously fast and ridiculously maneuverable um, ships. The other thing that is going on in sort of the gameplay is it's an improvement over TIE... Uh, TIE Fighter is an improvement over X-Wing in a couple of different ways. One there was a different graphics engine that was available for TIE Fighter where they used um, some new shaders to make these very low polygon because it was 3D, but it was all 3D based on your processor. Nowadays, you have a video card, and video cards were extremely rare until like the late 90s, maybe mid-90s, and what those were, were they were, you know, strapping to your computer a separate set of computing that's only job was to go and render the graphics. You have something that's only goal 
is to make all these pretty three-dimensional graphics work. Well, in TIE Fighter, you don't have that. So what they did is they had these very low polygon, you know, we're talking less than 20 polygon kind of uh, images, but you would use shaders and different texture systems to give the illusion of things they couldn't do. Like, so for instance, in low polygons, you can't make a sphere. Well, all the TIE Fighters are spheres with wings. So what they do is they use these shaders and stuff to sort of round out the visual appearance of this stuff. So TIE Fighter had a lot sharper of a look to um, the gameplay than X-Wing. It's all kind of laughable now, especially when you look at something like Squadrons and just how ridiculously beautiful you can make these cockpits and ships. But at the time, it was fairly important. The other thing that I think was important uh, story-wise was you had uh, in-game dialogue. So... You, while you're flying around, there would be um, voice samples and stuff, but now you had like a full vo a voice and dialogue system happening during the course of the flight. So you could command your squad to go different ways, you could give them orders, um, and you could get orders and stuff, and the gameplay could evolve over time. Which was really important because something that the game did to, again, make that fantasy of being the bad guy really fleshed out was you would be um, dealing with conflicting goals. So every scenario would have a couple of objectives and many would have bonus objectives and eventually you get extra objectives like tertiary objectives and then secret objectives. So let's say that your whole job is to do a cargo inspection. So you fly, you, you know, fly into a part of space, usually dropped off by a ship or whatnot, because most of your ships don't have hyperdrives. You fly in, you look at these cargo containers, you use your onboard systems to kind of put them in the reticle and then turn on a scanning system and you're observing, you know, hey, is there any contraband on these things? Then let's say you get some contraband, you find the rebels have some guns or something on this one thing or medical supplies and they hyperspace in and now you've got a squad of like three X-Wings with a Y-Wing support coming at you, okay? So the objective going in is scan all the cargo traits. So once you've scanned all like five cargo systems, it'll say, oh great, you've, you've achieved that objective, checkbox. Then these guys warp in. Now you've got a new new main objective, which is you need to defeat all of these before for, you know you can complete the mission. So you can go dogfight these things. Well, you might have something where like, let's say you scan the cargo, the first cargo, um, and that's the one that triggers the ships to come in, great. Well, once you mop up all the X-Wings, you might still have to come back and scan the rest of the cargo just because that was your mission objective. And in that same mission, you might be playing it, say, later in the game, and you have something like um, a secondary objective, which is do not let any of the ships escape. So, you know, maybe when you're beating up on this these X-Wings, the Y-Wing decides that, oh, this is too bad, I'm going to get out of here. And if it hyperspaces out, you won't lose the mission. You will still complete the mission because you completed your primary objectives. But rewards or path through the story or the next session or campaign, you know, the next path on your campaign might be harder because that Y-Wing in-game got away and it was able to report what you were doing. Um, then you might get like tertiary objectives, which is like, I don't know, destroy the, the, the rogue leader of the X-Wing flight first, something like that. Again, something that you do not have to do, but it may gain you something. And this really comes into play because about in the middle of your career, you are tapped to do special tasks. Uh, I very vividly remember this when I played the game where 
you're on an escort mission and it's like, okay, well, you got to defend this shuttle. Why? Because the shuttle has an important imperial dignitary on it. So make sure that you protect it. Well, as you're doing that, you start realizing that the important imperial dignitary is his royal majesty himself, the emperor. And once you prove yourself to be very, very good, you are are essentially like the emperor recognizes that and is like, you know, thank you for saving me. We will watch your, your career with anticipation. And as you go, you eventually become an imperial, what's called the emperor's hand. And the emperor's hand is like Mara Jade was in the stories of someone who is directly reporting to the emperor. And so now this new uh, thing opens up in your uh, Star Destroyer, which is you can talk to this shadowy figure who is the Emperor's voice? He is someone who is here to essentially give you missions on the Emperor's hap, behalf. And um, in X-Wing and TIE Fighter, like as you complete missions and, and complete tours of duty, which are their like campaign arcs, you would get like medals and stuff like that. So you could get better medals if you perform better in the missions and stuff like that. Well, in TIE Fighter, once you join the Imperial Hand, you have this crazy like... Uh, Sith tattoo on your left arm and you can look at that and it gets more complex and more uh, you know insignia and stuff on it as you become more tied to the Emperor and so what you might have is that same mission right let's say you did that same mission with the cargo and the x-wings and the y-wing and it says um, yeah the cargo that you're having is something the the rebels wanted to intercept it's actually important Sith artifacts. So once you mop up all the X-Wings and stuff, um, kill your own squad mates. Uh, no one but you can bear witness to this. You're in the inner circle, you're allowed to know that, but no one else can know about this. So kill your own squad mates. Um, and so you'd have these missions where you're destroying Imperial uh, technology or you're specifically sent to um, mop up a specific rebellion because oh well you know they might just be a fighter pilot but like no they have the potential of the force you need to wipe them out like they're just much more ruthless and often will be somewhat conflicting with your second and tertiary goals so your primary objective is almost always there's not a problem um, being in, following the emperor's commands as well as getting the primary job done sometimes there are because the game does fork there are some limited ways that the game can go in different directions and you can end up with different missions than you would had you done X amount of other things. But as you weave yourself way through the game, you just get this incredible sense of um, growth between getting better ships and better access, getting rank, getting all these medals. There's also these moments where you have audiences with the Emperor. There are uh, moments towards the end of the game and the end of the deal or the DLC. The expansion packs. Back in the day, we didn't have DLC. We had expansion packs because you couldn't download the content. You had to go buy it at a store. Um, so there's like Defender of the Empire and stuff, which is an expansion pack for uh, TIE Fighter. Um, but there's like moments at the end of those where you're literally on Coruscant. Uh, if you've been listening, Mac, me, my favorite character in the entire Star Wars universe, and this is probably the first time I saw it, was there's an opening shot of the Imperial Palace, and there's a few times you go back to Coruscant in the Imperial Palace, and, ooh, that Emechapopolis, it's my favorite thing in Star Wars. Um, but you're going and having, like, audiences with the Emperor, and they imagine the Emperor's throne room and audience chambers, and it's just really cool. And, again, having all those secret objectives just made you feel... It gave you that sense that it, it's supposed to, which is it makes you feel special. It makes you feel that like, hey, you started out as a rank and fire, file TIE fighter pilot, just a nameless guy in black armor. And now you are the most important maybe fighter ace in all of the Imperial Navy. And that growth just feels 
amazing. Um, now, the only kind of downsides to TIE Fighter is um, it is a combat simulation game. So there are certain things that like um, you have to keep aware of. It's not arcadey. You have to lead your shots. You got to be very careful with your ship. You got to be very careful with shields. Um, as you get better ships, you get back to what X-Wing has, which is kind of balancing your shields, your energy output, like for your reactor, for your speed and stuff like that, as well as your laser and weapons recharge. And you have to balance those systems. So it's got a lot of things going on. I think in most video games today, we, we actually ask ourselves to do a lot more multitasking than that. But at the time, it was, it was a little heady. Um, but I really encourage you to check it out if you if you have any interest in it. Um, it's fun and it's fairly inexpensive to get into. It's basically available on everything. It was off the shelves for a really long time, but now you can get um, most of the good LucasArts back catalog on all the various services for PCs. So you can get that in places like Steam, uh, Good Old Games, or GOG.com uh, offers all of these things. Um, and they're fairly affordable if you want to try them out. Um, and they look pretty good. And there are some nutcases out there that have made some pretty impressive mods. So if you want to put and slap kind of a, a nicer coat of paint on it, you can do that. I mean, you're still... You're gussing up a, what are we, what are we at now? A, um, 18 or sorry, 28 year old game. So, I mean, it's not going to be amazing. You're not going to completely reinvent the wheel. Um, but you, uh, you can get some pretty cool stuff going on with it. Um, and it can look pretty, uh, pretty amazing. And to be honest, it's it's not too complex of a game. You you can go in there and play. Um, something I did because I was pretty young when I played this is there's also, because it's a flight simulator, you can turn things like um, collision off. You can turn um, and ship destruction off. So you can be kind of immortal as you fly around, which is helpful, but it still doesn't change the fact that like chasing down some of the dogfights and stuff, you still have to get through through skill. But if you're looking to get it, kind of blow through it a little faster, that is an option for you. And like I said, it's fairly easy to get. It's really fun. Um, and especially if you've enjoyed Squadrons, if you want to see sort of its birthplace, you can do that. And I think that even though it's extremely Legends content now, I think the story is still fairly interesting to just see what the earliest days, the crawling out of the um, the Dark Ages of Star Wars were. Um and uh, I think you might really, really like it. Well, uh, that's all I have for myself. And so now we're going to go into a different topic with my co-host, Ross, right after this. Wow, another episode of Star Wars All In coming to a close. I hope you really enjoyed listening to me ramble on about Star Wars publishing and listen to Mac talk about TIE Fighter in all of its glory. But more importantly, just want to take a moment and 
say thank you to everyone who listens each week. Uh, obviously, the last uh, year has been wild in many, many ways. And seriously, just the fact that you take any of your personal bandwidth time and apply it to our show uh, really means a lot. And we really appreciate it. And uh, especially over this last year, really has given us something to look forward to. So we really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. Let's see what all is going on in the world of Star Wars. Um, I just finished up, from a certain point of view, Empire Strikes Back. Took a nice long time to finish that one, but really enjoyed it. Uh, There are a few stories that really stood out to me. The L3 story uh, being one in particular. The Exegor Space Slug story with uh, CO. I really, really loved that one as well. So those are a couple for me that really uh, took the cake, as it were. Um, Really will definitely talk about those uh, stories again in the future, for sure, on the show, as soon as Mac finishes it. Uh, Let's see, The High Republic has launched in Star Wars, so it is a great time to be a Star Wars novel fan, as you heard me briefly talk about in my topic. Uh, I'm about 35% of the way through Light of the Jedi at the time of recording this. Uh, I did not preemptively read the first eight chapters early. Uh, I, you know, learned as little as I could about the story, and let me just say I am so happy that I did, because I am absolutely loving Light of the Jedi, Um, I, it's too soon to say if it is my favorite Star Wars book, but I can tell you, it certainly does feel like it's up there because I really am just having the best time with it and I can't wait to finish. I can't wait to start a test of courage into the dark comes out next month. Um, I still haven't read Thrawn Ascendancy Chaos Rising, so working on that. Um, let's see, that is about it for, uh, the Star Wars I've been doing. I just sat down with a friend and watched Mando Season 2 from start to end, so that was my first time getting to do that, and that was fantastic. Um, hopefully by this point, all of the winners of the Season of Giving have received their gifts. I know I've heard, uh, from some of them, so I know that they at least partially got there. So that's a great start. Uh, Hopefully everybody received them safely. Um, No mishaps uh, during shipping. And hopefully you all enjoy. I I really do hope so because, uh, well, we want to bring a little holiday cheer to you as well. So once again, thank you so, so much for joining us this week. And we look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. So until next Wednesday, I'm Ross. And I'm Mac. And may the Force be with you. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2021.